Living in space, just a wall between us and oblivion. Will humans live in space full-time? This is Fact and Science Fiction. I'm your host, Carly, and this episode, I'm talking about space stations. So this is part two of my two-part series on living in space and space colonization. But this episode focuses on living in craft. And we're going to talk about different examples, different designs, different speculations that have popped up in a lot of science fiction over the decades. But it's different than actually living on another planet, on another moon, in an asteroid belt. This will be specifically living in space stations. Now, for this episode, I wanted to watch sci-fi movies that I'd never seen before. I feel like sometimes I use the same examples over and over again because I'm only working from what I know. So, I wanted to watch two movies that I'd never seen before. So, Laris in 2001, A Space Odyssey. I know what you're thinking. How could I make a podcast about science fiction never having seen 2001? Well, it's one of those movies that is so permeated pop culture, I just never got around to it. Like, I saw Gene Wilder's spoof of the beginning, and I'd seen a million references of the evil AI Hal over the years, but I watched it this weekend, you know, start to finish. Most of the film takes place in a space station or a space shuttle. Now, most people are familiar with Hal. In fact, I think Hal is the reason astronauts are reluctant to give up all control of a spacecraft to a computer. 2001 was co-written by Arthur C. Clarke, the prolific sci-fi writer, and the director Stanley Kubrick. And there are a few films that have inspired most of the following science fiction more than 2001. I see so many aspects of the film now in current sci-fi, like the black monolith standing ominously, unwaveringly, repeated in the film Arrival, visitors in their large black oblong craft standing erect on Earth. But 2001 also predicted a lot of real technology now in existence today. Science writer Piers Bizzany, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, said that the film was meticulously researched because at the time the movie was being made, NASA was preparing their mission to the moon. What if Kubrick put his ideas out there and then within like six to eight months or a year, everything was out of date and looked fake? I don't think we'd revere the film as much if that happened which is why much of the set design accurately forecasted how we live with technology today. The executive briefcase with its phone handset and dial, and all the elements of the laptop or smartphone are there, half a century ahead of its time. You could also, for example, see HAL 9001 as a proto-Siri. Also remember that nobody knew what a spacecraft like a shuttle would look like as it floated in space at that time. Movie artist Richard McKenna was creating color schemes for spacecrafts before anyone really knew what they might look like. Roy Carnan, another illustrator, created a visual system for Kubrick that imagined how sunlight and shadows might fall in space. Other advisors took cues from submarines and military vehicles to create the red-lit interiors of the Moonbus cockpit. Designers pored over NASA photographs for inspiration on the EVA suits and control panels. When it came to designing HAL... Movie designers went to IBM, then the largest computing company, and explained what they were envisioning. 
a control panel that characters could talk to. IBM couldn't even conceive of that system. At that time, computers, and especially supercomputers, were basically rooms that people went into. They would compute by those hard copy sheets that we see briefly in the film. It was because of NASA needing smaller computers to fit in lunar capsules that companies like Motorola and Raytheon, which I haven't even heard of before, were pushing toward miniaturization. Miniaturization meaning slightly less than room size. 2001 also predicted high-quality computer graphics. At that time, computers barely had screens in order to read data. The highest tech at that time displayed 512 pixels of data across. Kubrick knew that that would not be up to snuff in 2001, so he and the effects specialist Doug Trumbull used film negatives mounted on glass panels, and then using lights and filters projected them onto the control panels. And let's not forget the International Space Station. So in the second part of 2001 A Space Odyssey, Haywood Floyd is sent to a base on the moon to figure out what's happened. In this hypothetical future, dreamed of in 1968, might I remind you, people traveled to space to this hub. Looked like an airport on a layover. People drink, go to a restaurant, call their families, and then travel on to the base on the moon. Now get this, NASA is working on the replacement to the International Space Station right now, and it's going to be uh, close, at least, to the lunar orbit. It may be smaller than the current station, but it will be farther away from Earth, perhaps even farther than the Apollo moon missions have traveled. Anatoly Zak at Popular Mechanics wrote that the most exciting idea behind this new station is that it's destined to make its home orbiting near the moon and it will provide a new foothold for future human missions to Earth's closest celestial neighbors, as he put it, like asteroids, the moon, and maybe even Mars. Because the station is at an egg-shaped orbit, stretching anywhere from 1,500 kilometers to 70,000 kilometers from the moon, would need only a little push to be sent flying to a yet-to-be-chosen destination. The first craft of this new space station will be launched hopefully in 2023, and it'll position a robotic spacecraft called the Power and Propulsion Bus in a stretched orbit around the moon, and then in the two years following that, a pair of barrel-shaped modules, about four and a half meters wide and five meters long, will be delivered to the same orbit and then bolted to that Power and Propulsion Bus. So in 2001, once Haywood reaches the moon, he and other investigators stand in front of the black monolith, and they're plummeted with a high-pitched radio frequency that they learn is being beamed to Jupiter. And the part after that, that's when it became more recognizable to me, because that's the part with Dave and Hal. In the third part, astronaut Dave and his crew are piloting a large revolving space shuttle to Jupiter. Most of the crew is in hibernation until they reach the destination, while Dave and Frank have to stay awake and make sure the ship makes it to Jupiter with the help of computer HAL 9000. HAL has a very unnervingly calm voice, and eventually HAL mutinies, cutting Frank loose while he's outside the ship and not letting Dave back into the station. Dave decides to let Frank float off into space, calmly killing him, in order to steal back onto the ship and shut HAL down. The film depicts the evolution of humankind, as we were apes learning how to form groups and declare other groups the enemy, from creating tools and using those tools to murder, and later we created another tool, HAL, and ships to take us beyond the infinite until we are reborn into a new form. I read this piece of trivia. 
Stanley Kubrick was very well-read. It's rumored that the image of the star child came to him from the spirit of the Earth in Percy Shelley's Prometheus Unbound. Within the orb itself, pillowed upon its alabaster arms, like a child or wearied with sweet toil, on its own folded wings and wavy hair, the spirit of the Earth is laid asleep. Now what I like about 2001 A Space Odyssey is that it is 50 years old this year, as of 2018. And people are still talking about it and talking about its themes and its metaphors. So the next movie that I watched, well, I actually watched it before I watched 2001, is 2002's Solaris, which is a more psychological thriller that takes place in space than an actual science fiction, I think. But it still had cool ideas about what humans are actually looking for philosophically when we attempt to colonize space. Answers, redemption... One of the characters, Gabrarian, says, Our enthusiasm for colonizing another planet is a sham. We don't want other worlds. We want mirrors. And Solaris also deals with the thrilling, mysterious extraterrestrial life like in 2001 A Space Odyssey. So like I said, I watched the 2002 film Solaris, which is a remake of a early film in the 1970s. And the 1970s one was a remake of a movie Solaris that was even earlier than that. So, the one I watch stars George Clooney and Natasha McElone. Clooney plays Chris Kelvin, a psychologist sent to investigate the crew on a space station revolving around another planet they found called Solaris. When Kelvin gets there, the remaining crew won't explain what's happening exactly, only that most of the crew has either died or disappeared, including Kelvin's friend. But the remaining crew won't leave, but won't accept help either. Soon, Kelvin realizes what's gone wrong with this mission, when his late wife, Rhea, appears in his bed on the space station out of thin air. Apparently, Solaris the planet has been sending these copies or these visitors of the crew's loved ones. Gordon believes they're like a poison, manipulating the crew to some unknown end, perhaps in an effort to get sent back to Earth to poison the rest of mankind. Kelvin, however, becomes attached to this copy of his late wife and is dealing with a lot of guilt from the real Rhea's death. He doesn't want to kill the copies and wants to bring this Rhea back to Earth with them. Now, I love ambiguous, strange science fiction. I didn't know much about Solaris, except that it was on several lists of good sci-fi films. I chose to watch the remake, and I enjoyed it for the most part. It's ambiguous and non-linear. The characterization of women is pretty underwhelming. Viola Davis was really good at playing Gordon, except you don't really know much about her character. Like, you don't even see what her visitors or what her copy is. You just know that she got rid of them. And then I'm going to keep going on to this tangent about women in sci-fi. I know it's not really related, but Natasha McElone's character Rhea is like a manic pixie dream girl of sorts, literally existed, like popped out of thin air just for George Clooney's character development. I mean, that was part of the plot was that you only see her through his memories And he asks himself toward the end, what if I'm remembering her wrong? Rhea's copy tries to tell him that I'm based on your memory of her, so I'm not really her. And in the end, I'll just spoil it for you. It's from 2002, after all. Uh, Kelvin decides that he doesn't really care anyway. He'd rather have whoever this person is, Ray or not, in this dreamland than question it, it anymore. As for the science living on space stations, the space station that revolves around Solaris has gravity. Um, I mean, everything has gravity, but it has weight, so the crew can walk around. But the science of maintaining the space station in Solaris is barely thought of until the very end when Gordon wants to go home and 
the ship doesn't have enough power. The, like, major conflict in the third act is that Solaris has gained, like, exponentially more mass, which is inexplicable. The space station in 2001, on the other hand, was one of the most visually interesting aspects of the film. Kubrick spends really long sequences just observing the characters interacting in that space. It is a cylinder that rotates. Uh, Dave can run up and down the walls. Like I said, a lot of recent science fiction takes inspiration from 2001 or sci-fi written in that time. In The Expanse, the Nauvoo um, was a generational ship constructed at Tycho Station in Season 1. It is also cylindrical and very, very large. It was uh, commissioned by the LDS Church to carry pilgrims to an exoplanet, and that was really interesting. So science fiction creators and scientists speculate on different designs of space stations. The Halo franchise uses the idea of ring worlds. Ring worlds contain one of the most interesting ideas for an artificial civilized world. The theoretical space station includes a giant ring-like structure with a habitable surface on the inside portion of the ring. And then through rotation, the centripetal force would theoretically create gravity on the station's surface. Sci-fi author John Scalzi used a long-regarded idea of a space elevator in his book Old Man's War. It could serve as a means of drastically accelerating space technology because we'd be able to send supplies and send equipment up into orbit. The idea behind the space station design is that the station would literally be connected to the Earth by an elevator. So while the design does not contain a purely in-space structure, it serves as a crucial step into space exploration and technology. And then there are spherical space stations like the Death Star. The Death Star was a movable space station the size of a moon, essentially an artificially created planet. And then another form is called the Dyson Sphere. The idea behind a Dyson Sphere is that it would be built around a solar system in order to keep the sun's power in and external potential threats out. Series like Lost in Space and films like Interstellar, 2001, and Aliens use the idea of generation ships, in which passengers are cryogenically frozen in order to live on a ship for thousands of years. This idea deals with the fact that we can't travel close to the speed of light, so we have to find some other way to make these long journeys and still survive. Another idea for a space station that's popular among science fiction creators and speculators is the O'Neill Cylinder proposed by physicist Gerard O'Neill as a possible means of a space colony. Using materials from the moon and asteroid belts, the O'Neill space station would be two cylinders that would rotate counter to each other. The rotation would help it stay its course, and the centrifugal force would provide artificial gravity, or weight, enough for humans to live inside for long periods of time, and not affect like our bone density and stuff that, being in space, seems to affect. These cylinders would be 5 miles in diameter and up to 20 miles long, large enough to contain a city full of people. In Interstellar, the movie ends with humans living in a space station that's similar to that. It's uh, folded over itself so that a fly ball hit straight up like went through somebody's kitchen window. Kip Thorne wrote that we need to overcome some serious physical, like physics, problems to create space stations that large. 
like the current station NASA is working on, then the ISS is built and maintained by sending parts up to space separately and then effectively being built in space. In Interstellar, the characters find a way to reduce the gravitational force on Earth so that rocket thrusters could launch the large space stations into space. Though Kip says this would basically ruin Earth in its wake, causing earthquakes and tidal waves. The first time the idea of a space station was introduced in fiction was in 1869 by Edward Everett Hale in a short story called The Brick Moon. It was basically a massive spherical assemblage of bricks, 200 feet in diameter, that was catapulted into space between two giant rotating flywheels. It was supposed to be like a lighthouse for ships, so anywhere in the world, a ship could see this blinking beacon. The builders of the brick moon are actually trapped there, and people on Earth will send supplies to them using these flywheels. And that was the first time that anything like a space station was talked about in fiction. Whatever we develop with NASA or with these private companies, we'll have to take all of our experience and all of the science fiction we've ever come up with and use those ideas for the future. Because science fiction can point out the problems. I checked out How to Build Your Own Spaceship by Piers Bisney, and he wrote, Whatever your plans for the orbital realm or beyond, the most unpredictable components involved in your schemes won't lie within the motherboards or in heat shields, nor the engines or turbo pumps. For all the volatility of your hardware, the trickiest elements to deal with will be the brains of your people. The thing is, humans have evolved in this Goldilocks scenario to fit this Earth. Living in a space capsule, living in a revolving cylindrical space station for years, for thousands of years, it's going to take serious adaptation. We have examples of humans living in Antarctica on these research stations and not being able to see the sun, having our circadian rhythms messed up so much because of that environment seriously affects the way that we think. Research projects like High Seas that I mentioned in the last episode are trying to figure out how do we get humans to be able to work together, solve these problems, do science, you know, find a new home when we're so wired to be happy on Earth. So this wraps up my series on space. Already I want to record some of these episodes because NASA just keeps releasing all of this information from Curiosity and from the JPL. And so who knows, I'll probably do more in the future because it's really hard to keep up sometimes. My next episode, I'm going to totally do a 180 and it's going to be about dinosaurs. The new Jurassic World came out recently news about some scientists who think they can recreate dinosaurs in the next five years. So I want to talk about it. Um, I want to talk about what we know about dinosaurs, how it's changed over the decades, their behavior, their biology, and what it would be like to have a real Jurassic Park. Subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, now on Google Podcasts. It's a new app for Android users. Looks 
really easy to use, or you can subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow the pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Fact and Sci-Fi. Check out this post with the script and more content on the website, factandsciencefiction.com. What am I forgetting? Oh, and lastly, thanks for listening. <laughs>